netcasting from Chicago, Los Angeles, and Sydney. You're listening to this week's FX Podcast from FXGuide.com. Hi, and welcome to the FX Podcast. I'm John Montgomery. I'm recording this in Stuttgart, Germany, as I'm here attending FMX. Actually, it's my first conference since Seagraph Asia, pre-COVID. And it's really always inspirational to attend conferences and hear the talks and so forth. But I guess this time I'm especially excited about seeing the people I missed over the last several years. You know, working on FX PhD and FX Guide, it's been incredibly awesome and, and frankly humbling to meet so many people around the world who frequent FX Guide, who have taken our courses at FX PhD and actually be able to see their names rise up the ranks on the movie credits over the years. It's really, really inspiring. And I mentioned this because actually one of our guests for this podcast has been a member of FXPHG in the past, taking our VFX courses. And that's Nikola Todorovich, who is one of the co-founders of Wonder Dynamics, who joins us along with the other co-founder, Ty Sheridan, an actor who starred in Ready Player One, as well as in the X-Men series of films, among others. And if you've been hiding on the rock and don't know, uh, they're the creators of Wonder Studio, it's an online-based AI tool that um, automatically places CGI characters into a live-action scene, uh, replacing the human actor with the CGI character. And it's not just doing, I mean, if you think about it under the hood, it's doing an amazing number of things, such as markless motion capture, body, faces, even hands, uh, camera tracking, lighting, you know, creating a clean plate so the CGI character can be composited, and, and so much more. So... I think you'll really enjoy this podcast. They cover a bit of the history of why this tool is created, uh, where it's at now, and some of the technology that's under the hood, as well as where they're moving or looking for moving forward with it in the future. So let's go ahead and, and cross to that now. This is Nikola talking a bit about his experience with FXPHD. No, I was saying I was really excited to connect. You know, I've been, uh, since my first VFX job, I've been obviously uh, using FXPHD and watching watching your, you know, blog and your tutorial. So. Th th thank you for you know even without knowing mentoring a lot of our possibly effects artists so yeah well that. on behalf of john montgomery and myself uh it's brilliant that you guys were even a part of it or have been a part of it so it's great so thanks um but i wanted to talk to you obviously about the huge impact you're having with uh wonder studios um and i guess the before we get into sort of the specifics of it, like just mm -hmm. give me the background of where the idea came from and the germination of the uh, Wonder Dynamics. Yeah, absolutely. So Ty and I met on a film about 10, 11 years ago, and we started writing together. Um, you know, we we both came in this industry, you know, Ty's an actor and a producer and me as a VFX artist that wanted to direct. And then I ended up uh, as a supervisor. So every time we wrote something, we wrote things with CG and visual effects that we knew we couldn't get funding for. Um, and so as we started uh, Wonder Dynamics, we stumbled upon AI. We were doing this product that was more interactive in nature, where you can kind of have a conversation with a character in a TV show or a movie. And this was 2018 to 2019. And we partnered this with other startup and we called it visual AI at the time, where we generated a scene. You know, there was no generative AI talk at the time. and then we really realized, okay, this is going to change the way production is done uh, completely. So, you know, selfishly, we started because we wanted to make our own films. But then when we started building the tool, we realized, okay, this is bigger than us. Let's turn this into a platform and put it in hands of people that have same issues yeah. as us, which is accessibility of these kind of high-end productions and, and expensive visual effects. Yeah, for us, it's always been about the the storytelling. You know, we we only started dabbling in technology because... It was a means to help us tell better stories. And that really has never changed. You know, it's still the heart of the company and the mission of the company. You know, we always say, you know, we are just as much a story company as we are a technology company. Um, and yeah, as Nicola said, we really wanted to put this in the hands of people like us, you know, um, who would who would use it and uh, had, uh, you know, problems making those types of films prior to that. Yeah. yeah. From your perspective, having obviously got that uh, experience as an actor, the I guess kind of curious is on your perspective on visual effects. Like, how much was it alien to storytelling because it was an add-on, or integral to feeling like you could uh, achieve the stories that you wanted to be involved in? So I think that you know I started out working on films like the very first film I ever worked on was a movie called The Tree of Life. I was eleven years old. Exceptionally good film. <laughs> Yeah, it's it was an amazing place to to start out. And um, before that, you know, I, I I was only 11 years old, so I didn't really know anything about the film industry. So I think 
for me, uh, you know, I always say that like I was coming to acting, you know, for the into acting for the first time and everything was new to me. It just, just as equally new as acting was to me. So I was so curious about the entire process of filmmaking, how a film was, was made. And I think that curiosity never really left me as I continued to pursue a career and, in acting. So when I started working on some bigger films, like, uh, I think I was 18 years old and, I, um, got a role in a X-Men film. And, you know, it was the first time I was ever on a set where the budget was you know, 200 plus million dollars. And there's a lot of visual effects elements. And so I just took those opportunities really to learn and got close with the visual effects supervisors. And they were always kind of teaching me. Things. So, so I, you know, I never really had the chance to, in some instance, to peek behind the, the curtain, I guess, but it was mostly understanding like the cumbersome nature of visual effects on set. And then how, you know, just what the visual, what I could learn from the visual effects supervisors and what I could obviously learn just by looking at behind the scenes clips and stuff online. And I think, you know, when Nico and I met, uh, yeah, 10, 10 years ago, you know, he, I think that was really one of the first times I kind of was enlightened on, you know, the, um, the perspective from, a, from an artist, from a visual effects artist and some of the, some of the uh, problems more uh, at a fundamental level. And so, and then in 2016, I worked on this film called Ready Player One, which I spent six weeks in motion capture and. And uh, that was a really eye-opening experience. Um, that I think I got a little bit more. I learned a lot on that film, and in, in every aspect, but especially in terms of the visual effects. And again, you know, it was I was probably I was probably asking one too many questions. You know, I was a, that curious guy who's you know um, constantly bothering people <laughs> because I was just curious. <laughs> but yeah, it was you know, it's it's funny. I think in the film industry, my experience has been when. You know, when you're genuinely curious and you genuinely want to learn, especially like when an actor's asking about visual effects, people are so excited to teach because it, 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 that I guess that kind of thing happens so rarely, which is unfortunate. But I, yeah, I guess for me, it was always about understanding the fundamentals of how you make films, what what people's problems are, what their roles are. And so I think Nico and I both kind of have that, have always had that curiosity and uh, I think that's been a big part of you know what why we built this the, the way we did you know we wanted to stay in the artist corner we wanted to build it to directly alleviate all of those issues that that artists experience because nicola i was going to ask you from the other point of view like one of the things that's really mm -hmm. difficult sometimes is you know you're trying to um facilitate these things with the actors but like it is so hard to explain like i know you're standing here and there's only blue i know you're standing here and there's you're only in a makeup suit but you know this this and this and it's both hard for you as a on a supervisor artistic level and it's also hard just to connect with the actor when they're like you know they don't have costume they don't have you know the wardrobe and uh sets that would otherwise facilitate them understanding more what's going on so there is traditionally been just inherent in the the nature of the technology, a remoteness between the the onset experience and the final experience. Yeah, I think so. And I think that was my frustration, you know, as an artist, I think a lot of artists I know want to be VFX supervisor because they really do want to feel that onset experience, right? Uh, um, and and they feel alienated and, and far from creatives. You know, I know a lot of artists that never, that unfortunately do certain tasks that are not that creative, right? Uh, and so for us, really, what we saw as an opportunity in, in AI um, is to speed up some of these non-creative parts and then leave you, you know, with the creative on it. So that's why we always say with our tool, you know, amateurs will use the final video and that's good for them because they don't have the VFX eye and for them, it doesn't bother them if background removal is not perfect. But, uh, you know, professionals, it's just supposed to be a first pass and quick first pass. And then you have these elements that you can go. Uh, um, you know, and edit. So for us, it was really important not to, I always say, disrupt, but don't destroy, right? So I think AI can coexist with it and then give you these elements. And we worked on films, right, before launching the, the platform, like the Russo Brothers, where we brought in artists, really senior artists that worked on big films like Guardians of the Galaxy, Avatar, et cetera. And we asked them, what elements do you need to complete your VFX shot? Don't worry about the AI. We'll just run it through the system and then we can extract all that. So for us, it was... From the day one, we went from a standpoint of film and filmmaking and seeing, you know, how do we do it that we stay in that 3D aspect? So I, I, I don't know, like, you know, from a standpoint of visual effects, I, I think uh, we do see AI, not just us, but we do see AI 
um, allowing indie filmmakers. I come from an indie world, right? And for me, it was always like a lot of indie filmmakers are scared of visual effects because they don't have the budget or they don't understand how to shoot it to, you know, be scrappy and to to make it for cheaper, right? So for us, what's really exciting about AI is we, we do really think it's going to allow a lot of these lower level budget films and TV shows to include more CG and more visual effects and make it make it visual big stories on a art level, right? Make more grounded stories on that because, you know, studios unfortunately have to recoup and invest huge amount of money so they can't really risk art films that much set in space, right? So. Yeah, I mean, I, I was uh, VFX supervising on a production in London and I got on really well with the actors and we, you know, they came to Australia, it was all good. But on the first day, I didn't know this, but on the first day of a visual effects shoot, where even though we had artwork to show them and all this kind of stuff, they apparently went home and talked to each other and said, oh, my God, what on earth are we doing? Is this going to be a disaster? Like, I mean, I don't even understand. And I only found this out later, right? And uh, no matter how friendly and everything we were on set, it was just an eye-opener for me that it was very right. hard for them to sort of see where this was going. Of course, we were introducing spaceships and a bunch of stuff that couldn't be practical on set. Right. So I guess the thing that is interesting to me with your work now with Wonder Studio mm -hmm. is that even though for an amateur, the render time seems like, oh, you know, I've got to wait 90 minutes or whatever. For a right. professional, it's remarkable that you could show somebody a mock-up, um, you know, uh, half an hour, an hour later after just doing a simple performance without the intrusion of typical mocap suits and uh and yeah. stuff so it's interesting and, that respect and, and I appreciate, yeah. yeah yeah i, I, I it. appreciate that it's really really interesting you know we're, we're speeding up our model so we're going to bring it down because we knew certain users will not understand because we have about 25 ml models running in the background plus rendering right so you know people are so used to online and just like getting immediate results but then you explain to them, no, 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 this will usually take weeks sometimes with artists, right? If you're doing it traditionally, just wrangling this data will take days, right? So, you know, it's, you know, it's obviously, you know, the the, the correct users like yourself will understand the benefits of it. Uh, but, you know, funny enough, one of the first projects that we did with this, uh, I ended up going on set and as the actor was uh, putting on mocap suit, I filmed him with my phone. And then 30 minutes later, I showed it to the producer. I said, hey, look, look look at this. And he was just so like lost. How did I do it? He was like looking around. He's like, what would you do? Do you have people sitting on a computer somewhere across the world? Just, just uh, you know, hand animating this. So I think the speed is really crucial. And, and you're 100% right. You know, pitch viz, post viz, a uh, big deal for us as well. And I think what we also hope to see is people using this to create, you know, projects that they want to create big projects so they can spend just a little instead of just a script they can create this first time you know first time filmmakers uh that want to uh, go do something and create a two-minute concept so they can go to the producer and say look i can actually do this right you know you can put this trust because it's really hard to get 100 million dollars just on a script and you've never done a cg film right also, or a vfx film, also, so also hard as you mentioned mike you know that that uh, that gap between with the actors, the story you just mentioned, where they just couldn't visualize, you know, what the final image would be, you know, it's so helpful as a tool just to bridge that gap in the vision, you know, and I think even with studios, when you're going, you're pitching something, even if you're a big filmmaker, you know, it, 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 sometimes if they can't envision it and, and you can't clearly express the vision for something, it's really hard for people to buy into it. You know, it's like the seeing is believing. Um, so uh, yeah, it's exciting to think about those opportunities as well. Yeah. And I mean, if a picture is worth a thousand words, then a clip is worth a thousand storyboards. Right. And, uh, so right. just seeing something moving, getting a sense of the dimensionality of it and the physicality of it. Um, and I think also, especially in the case where you're going to be having your performance translated to a non, you know, duplicate copy of yourself, like you need mm -hmm. to see how that physicality is going to express itself, uh, because, mm -hmm. you know, you can't judge it without that uh, simply because the limbs are different and the body weights are yeah. different and the gravity yeah. is kind of different. Yeah. And percent. one thing we learn also, uh, Mike, that was quite helpful is sometimes we build a character, right? We, we brought in this guy, Dave Komarowski, that run Disney character department for 20 years. And he worked with some really talented artists. And, you know, uh, even before Dave, as we were looking at, you know, some work, 
you know, sometimes the artist would model something. It looks really good in that setting, the lighting that they set up, and then you put it in certain live action, and you, then you really see where it lacks, right? The the where it doesn't, you didn't expect that look to be like that, and it really helps you, uh, uh you know, make your character with the vision you want quicker because you can run these passes. We usually what we do with new characters, we have like ten shots that we like to see it. It's a different lighting, different camera move, different settings. So you kind of already see how it fit in the whole movie. If I can run it quickly in a few hours, I can see, all right, it doesn't perform well under this situation, under this light or under this frame, uh, et cetera. So uh, versus doing it all in three, you know, kind of 3D environment. So from an acting point of view, also sometimes it's my perception anyway, that like an actor doesn't necessarily need to see everything instantaneously. But I remember hearing about um, uh, the mirror digital mirror or magic mirror stuff that ILM first came up with where they could, an actor could actually see themselves as the character and that would inform their acting just choices. So I was wondering if we could just talk about that for a second. Cause like, obviously the system at the moment isn't set up that you would run six hours of footage through it, um, you know, quickly from an acting point of view, I think it's a little bit wrong to think that an actor would need to have constant instant feedback, but you would need to get a sense of the physicality, right? And the way the relationship spatially kind of worked, or am I misreading that uh, point of view? Uh, no, I, I think like, just to go back to, you know, my personal experience of work, working in motion capture, I only worked on one film where I was in motion capture that was ready player one. And we had, we were driving our characters on a monitor in real time. And a lot of these characters were, you know, some of them were eight feet tall. Some of them were four feet, you know, some of them were the same size, you know? So it was, it was interesting to, to be able to see the characters standing next to each other and us driving them in real time as we stepped into the volume. But then that, I think what we were doing for the first time on, on that film or what anyone had, for the, this is the first time anyone had done this, I think, was that we had a, we had a headset um, that was, that was a tethered headset that was spatially tracking through the volume. So you could walk up to characters in VR space and see just how big they were and look at spaces. They were they were raw models of what the CG environments would be, but still you got a sense of how immense they were or you know, yeah, how vast or how small or how big that doorway was. So that was really helpful in terms of your imagination and seeing the world and understanding the world and how to be how to fit into it as an actor um, for this. I think it was also where motion capture is cumbersome. I mean, I can tell you <laughs> there were so many moments where Olivia cook uh, and I would, you know, ha have these intimate scenes together and we would get our head, our, our HMU stuck together. And so we were like, you know, trying to do the scene, but also trying to get them unstuck. And, you know, at times it was just really, it could be cumbersome. And you kind of sometimes feel silly in the motion capture suit and it's and very sweaty, always very sweaty, as you know. Um, but uh, so, yeah, it's it's what's exciting is that, you know, I think the, the technology um, in terms of, you know, using something like our system, there is no cumbersome hardware or technology mandatory that stands in between you and the person you're performing across from. It's, it's in a, a lot of ways, it's traditionally similar to what, screen actors may have experienced before it's just all you need is a camera and then the performance what's essential is that that performance and yes i think the um what's the advantage of our system is you know you can you can move in in a few different ways just to test to see how that motion is translating to the character and you can get quick tests done so that you can start to refine Okay, well, what if the what if the what if it's less animator? It's more it's more this or it's more that. You know, that's that's really exciting. Instead of waiting weeks or months to see those tests come back, you could actually go through that process in real time. Yeah, let's face it, you're offset by that point. So, like, you know, you really do need to get that feedback while you're still yeah, capturing. Absolutely. Okay, but it wouldn't be me if I didn't want to dig deep a bit on the tech. So let's do that. So, so I mean, I totally agree with you. I've spent my time in lycra suits with hmcs on my head and it gets tiring actually physically painful on your head and uh hurts your neck and stuff so a lot of that stuff but from a technical point of view pulling off getting good mocap just from a single camera full stop you did nothing else than that i'd be wanting to talk to you guys right because like that just one thing alone is incredibly valuable this is like one of, i think you just said 25 aspects of ml is that right 
Yeah, we have about 25 models in the background. We we could have launched a year and a half ago. We didn't want to just be one step in a process. We wanted to give you all the passes that you need, you know, whether it's final lighting or compositing or just the first pass of lighting and compositing. So that was really, for us, it was really important to, you know, for me, I come from compositing and lighting. For me, it was really important, like all those steps that we go in a, in, in a pipeline. Um, so yeah, we, I think what we did with AI Mocha from a single camera, why is that successful? Obviously, we have extremely talented talent team that worked on this. Uh, we we actually hired, you know, people that were uh, uh, um, you know, astrophysicists for some of these. We have uh, uh, this girl, Tiana, who's an astrophysicist that was working a lot on our uh, AI Mocha. I think we approached it from a standpoint of film from the day one. I think we've seen a lot of these AI Mocha solutions that uh, we're training it for more for games. So most training data came from certain angles of cameras, full shot of the body. We went from day one, you know, how would this perform on a really complicated, you know, shot that changes lighting, that changes framing, et cetera. So we went with all of our models from that perspective of, you know, we call it scene understanding. So if, you know, if I understand what's an image, what frame it is, what the actor is doing and what the lighting is knowing and crazy is coming, then I could, pull up a lot of information and get it in 3D space. So yeah, we spent a lot of time on some of the models, one of them being one of the being the AI mocap models that we use. And um some of them we built completely from scratch, like the lighting and compositing, because nothing, you know, not not technology on the market or open source was available for some of the things. And some of them obviously built from like self-driving cars and robotics that we, you know, stacked on top of things that are more related to film. And you've got lighting, you've got compositing, you've got um, camera tracking, you've got uh, background replacement, you've got character generation, uh, and of course, in even in subparts of any of those, and there are more, I know, even subparts of that. So obviously, the two areas that I was particularly interested in is hands and faces. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. The hand tracking is kind of remarkable, given. I guess people think that faces are more complicated, and they are in one sense, but hands are able to sort of turn inside out on themselves if you like I mean making right. a fist versus making your finger versus a open palm is just they're such different shapes so interpreting those and quite often a hand isn't actually that big in frame in terms of like number of pixels so it's like uh I was very impressed with that but the one that I guess most people would zero in on is faces and in the initial mm-hmm. work that you're doing obviously some of the characters are particularly brilliant because they don't have what I would call a traditional uh, fax type face. Some do, um, but some are more, um, you know, uh, graphical. How, yeah. I was going to just ask you like how, how incredibly hard and how far along are you in your sort of thinking on both hands and faces? Is this just like the first touch or is it a lot more to come? I think, yeah, there's a lot more to come. I think for us, for the facial, the characters we have as a library, we wanted to provide to people to play with. And to be honest, some of them we didn't finish uh, uh, blend shapes. So, for instance, like Professor, one of the characters, he only has eyes and eyebrows, and his mouth like opens and closes. So people sometimes be like, "Oh, the facial performance doesn't work." We're like, "No, he doesn't have blend shapes." So, but other characters, uh, um, you know, there's two more characters we have facial performance. Their blend shapes are past one. So actually, our facial performance is way better than what we can show because it's not just picking up information, it's also getting it back in those blend shapes and making blend shapes is really difficult and very time consuming as you know, right? So for us, is we're working on system of how to make that part easier. And then obviously we'll be adding layers. We're improving these blend shapes as we go and retraining models as we're going. Uh, we we spend, you know, we spend a lot of time on the on the facial performance and that, that has a lot of uh, room for improvement. But that's something we built from scratch as well. And we're pretty excited. I think what's really hard with face is to cover uh, all the possible shots, right? For the mocap, we're able to do that for the body. Now we're doing that with face because obviously if you have a wide shot and the actor is moving, you know, only see one part of say, you're gonna you're gonna lose, you're gonna lose that track. So for us, we're at this stage right now where we're doing that same thing we did for body mocap for face to cover as many shot types as we can and then keep improving it. And we're using a lot of like ML logic on prediction, right? Prediction of like, okay, if it started doing this, what is it most likely that's going to keep doing, right? And that that really does help. So yeah, we have some exciting updates coming up 
and definitely facial has a lot room to grow. We have one update that's going to fix a lot of these things to probably the next two, three months that we're excited about. Yeah, because it's not just, as you're indicating, facial orientation to camera, which obviously is you know, a huge part of it, but I mean, like beards, no beards, glasses, hair yeah, over the face, like, yeah, yeah, it's just occlusion, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, that's like enormous amount of stuff that you're trying to uh, gather there. I'm wondering, are you using the faces to feed the lighting algorithm? Because obviously the face is the closest thing you've got to a gray ball, effectively. Um, most heads are fairly round, certainly mm -hmm. mine is. We're, we're using a combination of things, definitely analyzing actor a lot, but we're analyzing shot as well. Um, so, you know, that, that's, that's one thing that lighting and compositing probably is the most robust part of the pipeline where we get it to, to you know, work. And then you can download that Blender file. For now, Blender, you know, we have tools for Maya as well, for Unreal coming up, where we, you know, you can go in and you have all that set up and then you can go and tweak your light if you want uh, uh, and quickly fix it. So one of the things that that sort of was curious to me, and I haven't had a chance to to extensively hit the Maya files, but mm. uh, the problem that you face structurally, industry wide, is that if mm. I'm trying to upload my own model, my own uh, character, mm. there is no standard for rigging. There is no standard for a lot of the facial stuff. So you're coming up. I mean, you, know, you could say I upload a character in a particular file format for the model. Mm -hmm. And right. not a problem, right? We've got tons of those, but there's just a zip right. when it comes to rigging and even standardization of approaches for, for rigging. No. Can you talk 100%. to that? Yeah, we have a couple of outer rig systems that we're building right now uh, that will help. We have a certain, you know, we, we usually do like we provide you with a, a base model that you can then go and follow kind of bone structure and certain things. But we, we are aware there's a lot of limitations right now. We're trying to build tools to automate some of those things because you're 100% right. I mean, for facial, you know, we're using the fax system so we can kind of stay on top of, but we're also working on some partnerships coming up that will fix some of those things that like are standardizing certain things. But yeah, there's definitely, we've seen it on our end. A lot of artists we worked with, uh, uh, we've seen that how different they work and how they're used to different, you know, rigging solutions. So, so uh, um, that 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 is definitely uh, something that uh, we're we're trying to. One of the reasons on this closed beta is to try to get feedback from community on okay which parts are hard, and we know that part is a part that needs a little bit of you know really input from artists to say okay what about this tool what about this tool. Yeah, I mean, if I was to characterize my experiences with the program so far is mm. it's brilliant, it's great, but it it's an invitation for so much more, if that makes sense. And I mean that in a good way, right? Like it's like yeah, you yeah, kind yeah. of go, well, if you can do that, <laughs> what about this? <laughs> yeah. 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 And this is why, Mike, yeah, sorry to interrupt. This is why we spent so long building it because we want we really wanted to build a foundational technology. That's why I say that scene understanding. We call it phase one. We wanted to build it in a space that we can build on top of it. And that's what we're doing now. We're building on top of it because you can, I think if you populate that space in 3D and you pick up all that information, you can add a lot of things on top of that that can just build. So that was, you know, that was one of the reasons we knew we're not going to do it in six months or a year. When we started, we we're like, okay, we're swinging for fences. It's not an easy problem, but let's try to get that foundational in out. And so, um, you know, it, it paid off in a, in a sense that I think, uh, um, it's very exciting where AI is going in general for us. We didn't want to be a black box. As I mentioned, we didn't want to do, you know, 2d space. We wanted to build AI where you can, you know, plug it in an existing pipelines just by using passes that you get out of it. Right. That was really, really important for us. I've seen, I've seen a lot of AI that comes out that, you know, kind of ignores the existing process completely. And I think that's a mistake because you, you know, there's a reason I always say there's a reason why, there's this pipeline in place. There's these really smart people, are really inc incredible companies like Veda and LM did, right? They, you know, they've been using ML for decades. It's not from yesterday, right? They've been using AI for a while. So for us, it's like there's so much collaboration, so many passes between shots, so many notes you're gonna get from director. You cannot do that with table diffusion alone in 2D space, right? It it just doesn't work uh, yet, right? <laughs> Yeah. Ty, I think you were going to say something. I, I, I no, I mean the only other thing that I would add to that is you know it's I know you had the chance to to play around with the tool a little bit, but you know we, as Nico mentioned earlier, you know we built this with filmmaking in mind, and 
every it's considered you know it's taking into consideration analyzing every aspect of that you know from the performance of the actor and the, the camera and the noise and the light in the scene and so i think what's really exciting for us as you said it, it's it's an invitation for more you know we're we're really excited about traditional filmmakers getting into this space for the first time you know using this as an open door to so much more and what all of those opportunities you know what what that might unlock into the future not just not just for us and, and our tools but just for storytelling in general i think that's one thing that's super super yeah and one thing just to add to one thing we noticed there's a lot of filmmakers that were scared of visual effects and we see them using tools and they realize oh man i can do this now and then they are asking in our group does anybody know any rigor does anybody know any compositors yeah. they're trying they're <laughs> trying to look for more vfx because they realize oh i can get my film actually done for five million dollars and but i just need 10 artists i don't you know i don't need to go to a big studio to get you know full-on production for so we've been seeing that and i think to add to what ty was saying you know we say garbage in garbage out so it really depends on your shot if your shot is really cinematic it picks up light from it right it picks up pixels from it so it will render your character in 4k with textures in 4k if you shoot 4k right if you're if you're shooting with your iphone portrait 720 it's going to match that grain and noise. So you're going to get an AR effect on it, right? So for us, it's like, it's as good as your cinematography is and it's as good as your 3D model is, right? So if you have a really, really good character, CG character, high fidelity, it's going to look way better. It's going to match that, right? So And it's a, and it's a tool that requires the knowledge of how to utilize movie magic. You know, you still have to learn where it fails, where it breaks, what the parameters are. And then once you back into that, and you're you you know like the box you can operate in for instance with with the performance you know having having as an actor you know having your performance with a bit more physicality you know is is you know and a character that makes sense for that obviously but that's going to get you more more interesting results and for a cg character versus you know something that's more subtle and so i think as artists continue to work with it and they'll be able to build stories around its attributes and advantages yeah. i mean i think the 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 incorrect narrative is uh like it's a one button solution and the reason i find that yeah. narrative offensive is because it presumes that we're taking out of the equation the artistic stuff and of course it's yeah. not it's just a tool that's facilitating doing it and as you say yeah. the great thing about having it able to produce something without a lot of setup is it reduces that fear aspect right like if you can get something happening immediately like most people sit down in maya they they, they give up right because mm. like it just mm. takes so much effort to get anything the, the response is as a human is like this is just depressing but uh in your case you get something straight out of the gate which is incredibly um you know wonderful to cause you to then want to find out more and, and do more um absolutely yeah and i appreciate that sorry enough mike i appreciate that saying and that to me personally means a lot you know someone who started visual effects at early age because you know I, I you know so far away from film industry i was in a really small country and for me working in the film industry was a pipe dream and you know i grew up uh, watching you know andrew kramer and video copilot and then when i graduated that school i started watching uh, your stuff so for me like it means a lot because i think uh, a lot of people i was in compositing and cg scared me so much meaning like opening 3d softwares to me was so complicated because i, I I learned After Effects and then Nuke. I did Flame a little bit. And then when I started learning some of these 3D softwares, I was like, man, this, this is so hard. This is so hard for me. Imagine for people that don't know how to use Photoshop, how will they, you know, uh, learn these things? So for us, AI, the biggest thing we saw AI in that takes something really complex and simplifies the UI, does a lot of work for you. And then you can go in these softwares as a professional to tweak it. But yeah, absolutely. But let me just, so now having said that, I want to put the other way and just mm -hmm. ask you a couple of technical questions. So one of the things that I was noticing, and it didn't occur to me until I was playing with it, um, I did a test where I was walking down some stairs, walked down a corner, mm -hmm. and I started leaning on the arm of a, effectively like a, a wall slash um, mm -hmm. kind of uh, thing. And the character that I chose had different, uh, it was retargeting, had different mm -hmm. basically dimensions in terms of the limb length height length mm -hmm. effectively of each of the limbs. So I thought, okay, now this is an interesting problem and I'm not sure even how you could solve it because whereas my shoulder would allow me to lean over and rest on this 
ledge effectively, right. the proportions of the character would make that extremely hard for that character to do because of the retargeting right. would have to be one-to-one -to, -one to my own height, arm length, et cetera. And so I wondered like if you could talk about that because I, I don't know, I mean, obviously you can take that information and work on it post in Maya and stuff, but yeah. this uh, correlation between my actual dimensions and limb lengths and that of a character when I could be a kid, an adult, a basketball player, or anyone, mm -hmm. right? Uh, from your point of view, I, I don't, I don't, you know, it's like, it seems like a really interesting retargeting problem. 100%. And I think one thing that we have in closed beta, we call easy mode, right? Easy mode, just click drop. We have advanced mode that we've been, we have a desktop version that is about six months ahead from what we released on the cloud. And the desktop version is the one we've been using on that Russo Brother movie, Electric State. And one thing that's going to come out in cloud is that advanced mode where you can go and select your offset and retargeting, right? So you can go to IK on wrist and whatever your wrist does, the character will match. Now, of course, sometimes if the arm is way shorter, that's not going to look natural. It's going to stretch it or you cannot go the same distance of feet if you're 6'4 or if you're 4 feet, right? So for us, um, I mean, traditionally in mocap, you're always going to, you know, if you have shorter character, smaller character, uh, uh, you're gonna you're gonna get little people to act right, or you're gonna have kids to act right uh, to try to match those performances. But there is some cases that you just can't really do that, so you just have to open it in the 3D software and then you know retarget it manually and and try to like recreate some of these 3D elements that that can help you with the contacts. Yeah, because I was going to say that. So I was going to use that exact case in my next point, which is so we're right. going a, a walk. Uh, system that I may be going over three meters, nine feet if you're right. American. Um, and clearly my gait is going to determine that. And and a lot of my performance would be, you know, informing how big I wanted my gait to be, right? Because right? it's obviously a character right. specific thing. Is there a sort of a sense that you're going to have a bifurcation of the product that basically says like, we're going to stay with the kind of simpler version that just gives you something, but it's going to skate a bit, but who cares because it's so cool and fun and then mm -hmm. there'll be a whole separate user interface for the advanced user or is it going to be more like it's going to sort of try and always accommodate both those users in the same sort of uh ux ui experience yeah no the advanced version so we have that like simple as we call easy and then advanced version is going to have a much more optionality you can you know you can select because one thing that we noticed that's really important we had to do is like offset of a character for instance if it's a if its character has bigger head than than a human, but it's four feet, uh, if you do a close up, you want to offset to neck. If you do wide, you want to offset to feet because you want it on the ground. You don't want it to fly, you know, flying there. But if you do offset to feet in a medium shot, you won't see the head, right? So we have these uh, kind of flexibilities on the user interface that we're going to add for more advanced. We wanted to start with easy and very simple drag and drop because I personally wanted to solve that problem of. 3D softwares that had millions of buttons that was really hard to learn. So I wanted to get that easy entry and then we'll keep adding features. And one thing we'll also do, we're going to, because we have those 25 ML models, we're going to individually allow you to run them. So if that's you what I was about to ask mocap, next. Yeah. 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 So if yeah. I could just wanted to just do mocap for no other reason exactly. than just getting that data out quickly on a previous, yep. I'd just be able to run that. Presumably that would yeah. make it faster, right? For Exactly, because right now, you know, if you're waiting 45 minutes to an hour and a half, you don't need to because mocap is going to take three to five minutes, right? So there's no sense in waiting for it. We just wanted to start with live action because we're big fans of live action and CG. But, you know, we, we knew that people would just like individual elements or people will like to use it, you know, for something that's not film, right? We've seen a lot of people from gaming just use it. They're asking us, can I just do mocap because I want to make a game with it, um, et cetera. So... I guess in this sense, if I could use the analogy, it's a bit like a Hollywood blockbuster, right? Because what you need is the opening weekend, which is the kind of ta-da <laughs> that gets everyone's attention, which you've absolutely got. But then to go into kind of the pantheon of good films, you actually have to have a story that causes people to word of mouth, continue to come right. back, see it again, that kind yeah, of thing, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. We hope yeah. so. We hope it's a good blockbuster. Yeah, we hope so. We don't want a bad blockbuster in our <laughs> But I think, you know, when we... It's a good problem to have because people thought that we faked our demo, which was, you know, which is obviously, you know, a good good problem to have. What 
you know, Ty and I did a GTC NVIDIA conference after where we actually showed people those shots that we did for demo. And we showed that we only clean up four or five shots. The other works because we know how to film with it. Because if you move the camera a lot and the camera sees behind the actor, it's going to be able to recreate background better than if I'm feeling the entire frame and I don't see what's behind the actor, right? So there's, as Ty said, there's movie magic. Just in regular VFX, if you plan your production better, you're going to spend less on VFX versus if you just go and shoot and then you're going to be stuck with a lot of unusable uh, stuff, you know, you got to do in, in post. I think there are people that have been posting where it works and where it fails. And like, mm. and that's important to understand its limitations. Though you're absolutely right. In VFX, you can get a shot where the actor's going to walk through the door. The door doesn't go anywhere. And the shot only holds to the second that if it went one frame more, you'd see that it doesn't go anywhere, right? right? right. You cut right. at that point because yeah. that's how you make a film, right? And exactly. similarly, exactly. I think one of the art is going to be understanding for the independent filmmaker where you can make your product sing and where you can mm -hmm. avoid a lot of extra work because you haven't deliberately given it a, uh, a background that's not going to be able to be uh, in-painted or, uh, you know, things that are going to be hugely problematic for skating, et cetera. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. I mean, you know, the more familiar we got with our system, the better results we got. You know, we started, we've been testing this for a long time, understanding what, what shots, get really good results. And that's helped us make some really compelling content, you know, to use for our product demo and other, other uh, stuff that we've shot. But the, um, the, good, but, yeah. the good beauty, yeah, I wanted to add to it, the beauty of ML is that it's called machine learning for a reason. Every time it fails, it helps us get more data in to say, okay, this is what I need to fix. Let's annotate those steps and let's retrain it. And now it knows when it fails there, right? So okay, well, really but let does. me just hit on that then for a second, because one of the things about machine learning, obviously, is it's mm. training data versus its runtime response, right? Like it takes mm -hmm. a long time to train. Actually, the run is normally pretty fast. So mm. are there advantages there where you could basically learn from more than one shot effectively information that would be passed over several shots? In other words, you're kind of amortizing the training data over more shots to get a higher throughput? Because at the moment, it seems like you've got a whole training solution and a whole implementation solution, and then you start over, which is sort of like not fully taking advantage of what ML can do, though. Yeah, no, not, not really. So for us, like each individual, it's like a kind of holistic approach. So each yeah. individual step is, 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 is training. We did, you know, we have some company secrets where we figure out certain training models that are not traditional, that are going a little bit on that. Obviously, synthetic data helps a lot. But for us, you know, optimization was a big deal, right? Because sometimes people fix so much focus on data, which is super important. Like 80% of that is data, 70%. But the optimization is really important if, you, if you're going in uh, in a sense of like, okay, this is a physics problem. This is not a visual problem. You know, like if you're going to do your AI mocap and you know it's going to find those joints and it's going to fail if it joins in between. Maybe it's not visible, so it's guessing, oh, I think it's here. I'm not sure if it's here, right? And then you can go in, okay, but physically, would that be possible, right? Would this joint and this joint be able to switch sides in a matter of half a second? No. So then you train it on kind of physics approach and say where it goes, right? So there's a lot yeah, of- One like, of the uh, huge advantages of your system at the moment is I can't make it glitch. And what I that, say about that is I can make it not find the right- thing for me to lean on because of the retargeting problem. But what mm -hmm. you traditionally have gotten in programs prior to this, and obviously machine learning helps in this enormously, is you'd get it going great and then a, an arm would go through a head and then it'd flick back right. again, right? Incredibly right. bad one-off kind of glitches that would just right. be totally annoying. And I don't know if that's a product of just your ML architecture or you've got all sorts of uh, uh, constraints in there, but it just if it gets it wrong, it's sort of like, gracefully gets it wrong at the moment. I haven't had mega glitches well, that's, where- that's nice. I'm, I'm sure saying? you're going to get glitches, Mike. I yeah, you'll get, sure get, get, you get some glitches. Uh, <laughs> we, do, we do have some things that we solve that I'm super excited to get out that solve occlusion. For instance, like right now, occlusion is the issue. We yes. solved it recently and it's going to okay. take us some time to get it on cloud, but we solved it recently and we're so excited. There's still limitations on how much you can move camera, et cetera, and some of them, but just for mocap purposes, we managed to solve in and out of frame was a big issue going in and out of frame. It has like a half a frame that's going to like kind of trap, like, you know, like a kind of glitch and then occlusion, right? Going, sitting well, behind a That's what I did. I, I walked past 
a, a solid staircase. So I was only visible from the waist up or from the chest up. Right. And then I come around the corner to be to just exactly test that, which begs the next question, which is a classic ML thing is object mm. identification, but then object segmentation. And so, yeah. so if I was that's to a, stick my neck out and ask questions, <laughs> it would seem no, like that's a, a good question. Yeah, because can't, can't you do uh, generally, generally, yeah, auto auto roto mat occlusion we stuff. We have yeah. we here, here's the thing. We have roto. We turn it off for the cloud version. We okay. turn yeah. it off because it, it's really slow and yeah. we had limitations on your size of your CG character. So we decided it was a tough decision because I really wanted roto. We had yeah. like you know shots behind the desks and stuff. It's and hard. Like, it's hard to know that it exists, that there's a solution to it. And you're seeing people post results on, you know, Twitter or Instagram or wherever. And you're like, ah, we have, we can fix this. Yeah. The, roto, the problem with yeah, segmentation is getting better and better on ML side. And we know it's going to get better. I think for us, it was a big risk. It would, it wasn't fast enough right now where we wanted it to be. And it was really hard to do it. Uh, on you, all the use cases we wanted to cover, right? It worked really well if the character is about same size or smaller than your actor. It broke a lot if your character is bigger than your actor just for the reason of intersection of a lot of different objects and just for the reason of intersection of a lot of different characters because sometimes it would be really hard, like, you know... Yeah, you, need, you need depth you perception. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You, you need yeah. depth and depth calculation. I mean, obviously... You know, Veda, we just spoke to someone on, you know, Veda on Avatar, where they had almost real-time, you know, uh, adept compositing, which is super impressive. Uh, so for us, it's like, it was kind of, you win some battles, you lose some. So we realized, all right, let's let's shelf Roto for at least a month or two. Uh, we'll get it back. Yeah, so. Yeah, it, to Ty's point, though, I can imagine it is frustrating for you guys to see people kind of, I mean, it's inherently annoying. People whinge and and grope. I, there was a great comedy sketch once about a guy who uh, I've forgotten who it was, but he had a great thing about flying in a plane and they switch on Wi-Fi for the first time ever at the beginning of the plane. Everyone's like, "Oh my god, this mm -hmm. is amazing! I can have Wi-Fi in the plane." And then halfway mm -hmm. over, it stops working for some reason. Everyone's like, "This thing sucks! I can't believe this doesn't work." It's like, <laughs> dude, you're in a you're in a tube, thirty thousand feet in the air, and you can the fact that it's not mm -hmm. working for two minutes. Like, I mean, hello, like you just so quickly recalibrate to what That's seems so unreasonable. Your, yeah, going back, going back to your your uh, your earlier statement about different users, amateur users versus professional users, and the like, totally different perspectives from two separate worlds and, and rendering time. It's it's really funny because it's got it's kind of similar, you know, the expectations, you know, of people who really understand at a fundamental level all the problems and how challenging it is to produce these results and how much time it takes versus someone who's just being able to do it for the first time and now they're like, oh. It's going to take an hour and a half to load my video. You know, it's like, it's it's really funny. But I, I think the beauty of like the cloud for me, at least, is that, you know, you can let it run. Obviously, you can do sequence. You don't have to do shot by shot. Excuse me. So you can do a full sure. sequence and tag your actor and then it will run for each shots. And then let's say one of your shots out of 10 fails. That's fine. I'm going to fix the other ones and I'm going to start this one over, right? Yeah, 80% of the problem solved is eight hours out of 10, you're not sitting there at three o'clock yeah, in the morning, right? Exactly. You're not sitting there. You could go outside and play with your kids. I, I think you're 100% right on the perception. I, I um, You know, that's why for us, like talking to, you know, experts like yourself is, is super enjoyable because, you know, you understand the complexity of the problem we spent three and a half years fixing, right? While someone else will just focus on the final video. And we did have that problem when we launched people thought that we're all about that final video and that we're saying that it's a one-click solution for visual effects. And I, I went, you know, on our Discord and LinkedIn and I wrote, I said, no, 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 VFX is way too complicated for AI to replace it. It's supposed to be a first pass for professionals. And I keep repeating that because I think a lot of people don't understand the visual effects and they don't understand how difficult and why these artists are so good at what they do, right? So that's yeah. important for me. Stress. Let's get to that for a second on the rendering side of things. Mm -hmm. So like you've generously let me join the beta and I'm happily every time I get a second hitting the render button to do another test because I shot a bunch of footage on a you know professional camera. At some point though, I'm chewing through a bunch of your GPU cycles on some AWS cloud or something, right? Like uh, there's a limit yes. to how much you can open up the world to just be thrashing your, uh, your render cloud. Um, yeah. Can we discuss like price and just the feasibility because this is like the fact let's just take this example we've been notionally talking about 45 minutes to an right. hour right 
Right. Well, that's not 45 minutes an hour because somebody's gone off to the back room and gets around to it. This is because that's <laughs> how long it takes for presumably state-of-the-art GPUs to be crunching very hard problems, which is mm -hmm. costing somebody, presumably you, yes. power. <laughs> I uh, wish it's someone else, Mike. I wish yeah, it was yeah, That would be great. <laughs> yeah, so, well, I mean, it'd be great if, uh, if uh, a partner donated a whole lot of stuff. But nevertheless, right, like at some point, the cloud yeah. is only somebody else's computer, right? It's not magic. Right. The cloud is not yeah, like exactly. it's, it's, it's not, not in free. the cloud. It's not no, in the it's just somebody the else's no. computer. <laughs> well, I so think, talk to me about know, pricing and how you're going to sort of moderate that because otherwise you're just going to get the world just chewing up your runway. Of course. Yeah, I think for us, you know, I got to mention that we're in NVIDIA, uh, uh, you know, through NVIDIA on AWS, right? So these are, these are you know, machines the reason we wanted to go on cloud is because we really wanted to stay true to that mission. You know, I was, it's really important for me. I was a kid that was able to get in this industry because I had a computer and I was able to use After Effects and watch tutorials. So for us, it's really important to provide this because these workstations are expensive, right? So we wanted to go with the web browser solution first. Um, the pricing model, we're always going to keep a free tier that's going to have limits on minutes, right? We have to limit it on minutes, how many monthly you can do. And then we'll go tier, tier up from there, you know, from light pro to enterprise. Obviously, it's going to be most expensive to enterprise. We also do plan, we have a desktop version that we use internally when we do films, when we partner with studios. We do plan to release a desktop version for more professionals because a lot of studios cannot go on cloud. A lot of studios have issues with going on cloud because securities, right? But also, like, you know, as you said, we want to keep it affordable. We really do. But we're running this closed beta and we're, you know, we're realizing, okay, there's, there, we, that's why we have to have tiers with limitations, right? So like if you go in and then there's certain certain number of minutes you can export, a certain resolution you can export, et cetera. Um, so uh, so when, yeah, is that, not, when is your expectation yeah. of that kicking in? Like when are you expecting, I'm not asking you to commit, just roughly, uh -huh. are you thinking of moving out of closed beta? And it's, when are those going to tiers? Weeks. Gonna, yeah. six weeks? About, okay. four to six, about six weeks is, 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 is what we're aiming for. Um, I, I think, you know, for us, we... You know, we got about two hundred thousand signups the first four weeks, so we couldn't let everybody in at once because we couldn't debug. And the whole point of closed beta is for us to like get the feedback from users, debug what we know doesn't work, and then also see you know how can we scale the cloud because you know now it's also availability of the cloud, right? Because if you get million people starting a project at the same time. That's million computers. <laughs> Where are those GPUs uh, uh, around the world, right? So, uh, you know, it's not it's not a cloud is not an easy solution. We've been super fortunate. Our team, you know, on the software side, they've been really doing incredible, uh, uh, and we've been working closely with AWS, NVIDIA. They've been good partners. NVIDIA specifically, we've been working with them for a year and a half, um, you know, and they've been helping us a lot on on the infrastructure and and how to handle some of those things. Well, I mean, you're you're in the absolute sweet spot for Nvidia, right? Like, it's the combination of ML and uh, and graphics. It's like, uh, yeah, you know, yeah, it's a beautiful test case. Absolutely. How, how yeah. am I allowed to ask? How big is your team? Like, how? Yeah, of course, we're about fifty-five people now. Um, and, and and are you co-located or are you distributed around the world? We distributed. So we have, you know, we have people in the US. Obviously, we have people in Argentina, London. We most of our engineers is in Serbia, where I'm from originally. Um, interesting enough, we're down the street from this company called Three Lateral that got bought at Epic. I, I have I have visited Three Lateral, which was actually a question I, that I, I bit my tongue on earlier. So I'm going to ask it now. The because I was talking about the rigging question, I was thinking, do I ask it or not? But <laughs> I'll ask it now. It seems to me the obvious thing that I want to do is export my uh, MetaHuman and import it into yours. Comments. Well, we're working with Epic Games. I can't give you a specific answer because you know we're still, you know, we're still working on things. But we're really excited. Epic Games is our investor, and we're, you know, we're big fans of what they do. And Vlad and Trilateral team, I think they're absolute geniuses. So yeah, we solve one problem, they solve the other. I can't officially say, but you know, I think, you know, that's that's all I can say so far. No, no, I, I, uh, I incredibly impressed with Serbia full stop and then with uh, the team there. Um, yeah, I totally agree. They're really, really good. Um, but it's, I guess there's a couple of uh, partner points like that. Like obviously I imagine uh, the, 
the problem of being able to move files between different things like is obviously an omniverse mm -hmm. thing as much yeah. as anything else and then as i say like you've got the metahumans is like a really dominant thing in uh in ml and then there are various standards um in terms of uh materials and that kind of stuff that are also mm -hmm. it's I'm, I'm sounding like you guys want to basically partner where you can is that right yeah absolutely i think we're, we're you know we we want to have our north star and have a focus because if you try to do too many things uh you know you, you these problems are really difficult so we we're absolutely working on some partnership we're open for that as well because i think it's a community thing. There's not going to be one company that's going to do the whole AI movement and every VFX house for sure is inventing incredibly. So for us, I think for if AI is going to be successful and keep artists involved, we need to work together and partner and give that communication, right? Because I do think AI is going to speed up process, but I don't think people will leave tools that they work their whole life in. These tools will also have these ML solutions, right? So if you're an expert in Nuke, you're going to still be an expert in Nuke. Nuke's going to add a lot of a new integration in it, right? So I do think, I do think uh, for us, uh, as I mentioned earlier, we want to disrupt, but we don't want to destroy, right? And I think if we do keep the, we do keep the partnerships and for certain things that we can't. Because it's like you're reading from my playbook. Because my next partnership question was going to be the foundry, because it seemed to me that one of the other things that would be really good to get is an automatic nuke. Uh, for that matter, I guess something else, but just let's talk about Nuke, mm -hmm. an automatic Nuke export tree. So it basically not only just mm -hmm. gives me my background and my foreground, but it gives me mm -hmm. like a pre-populated, albeit basic kind of Nuke script that is an automatic starting mm -hmm. point for those that are using the advanced solution. Is that something you've thought about? I presume you have. Yeah, we did. I mean, we didn't speak to Foundry yet, to be honest. I think for us, Blender was the solution that we liked because of the community, because it was free. So yeah. right now you can go in that Blender file and play with your nodes on your lighting and stuff. It's going to be already populated there. Um, yeah. uh, you know, but absolutely, we when we worked with the Russo Brother project, all of our compositors worked in Nuke and we worked out some scripts to help, help them get there, right? So we are building internally a lot of those scripts, but obviously like it always helps to work directly with the company. Uh, you know, that's why we're working with Epic for a while because yeah. we wanted to get that insight on, you know, how do we What's make it easy for you? Is the business model to just keep the company doing this, or do you expect to have a kind of a bespoke unit that also had, because you've just spoken a couple of times now about the Russo Brothers film, right? I, I understand mm -hmm. why you'd want to do that, but moving forward, do you think you'll mm -hmm. always want to try to do bespoke projects just to keep you, I guess, getting that high-end feedback? Or is that, because some companies have like started that way and then just gone, we're just going to yeah. focus on a mainstream product. We'll probably do like two, three projects a year. It really helps us to learn a lot from their existing pipelines. So that's more for us to like see how at the highest level or what the studio pain points are. We learn a lot from that. And so we're building some custom solutions right now with, with one of the partners. But at the same time, one thing we're doing that we're really excited about is, you know, content creation. So, you know, Ty has been producing uh, a lot besides acting. So, you know, for us, we're excited about partnering with producers and production companies and yeah. giving them that insight in our tools and letting them use some of these more advanced features to create films and us co-produce with them. Because we're filmmakers at the end of the day. So we're really excited yeah. about telling stories with this. Yeah. And that's, that's you know, as, as I said earlier, you know, we're just as much of a story company as we are a technology company. You know, we had to build the foundational technology so that we could start then making the stories. And so that's really like a big next step for us is, is building out that content team, building a community around content partnerships and, and starting to work, you know, in, in, in instances like, you know, the electric state project it is, was an amazing experience, you know, because, um, you know, the Russo brothers are shepherding in new technology and working with filmmakers at the, at that level who kind of have a, such an in-depth understanding of visual effects and how to do it at a, at a high level only allows us to then take that knowledge, build it into our platform and and give it to amateur users. And so really- yeah, And I think that, that goes with the mission of the company, what Agbo is doing as well with the Russos is really encouraging young filmmakers and first time filmmakers to do things. So, you know, I think that's why Joe is on our advisory board and he's been someone that's been really, really helpful and understanding, you know, what works for a certain level of filmmaker. And obviously at his level, if you can use it, um, it's- Ty, do you see the company 
doing a lot of work in creating new characters and uh, and you know like literally developing up that library, or do you see this initial right. library as kind of like well these are examples just to get you going to make you sort of think about what's possible? Yeah, yeah. There's I mean community is number one for us. You know that's one reason we love working with Epic Games, and uh, I've learned a lot from them in terms of how to build a community and listen to artists and listen to what their demands are, and I think that that's really one of our priority goals is to build a community within the platform and actually create a marketplace where, where where artists can upload their characters and other filmmakers, other artists can come in and license those characters directly through the platform. So to create some peer to peer collaboration directly in the, in the platform, and then also be very communicative with the community and, and, and showcasing all the best results from the month or the week or what, you know, whatever it is, and starting to co even collaborating with, you know, some amateur, um, you know, character artists and create. We'll we'll also always continue to build characters um, that are our own characters, but we'll also have a library of characters that are yeah. user generated, right? Uh, and and so we we love we love building characters. You know, I was I was, you know, our first characters. Uh, obviously, I was overseeing it, and so I learned so much in the process, but I also learned. How hard it is. It's a really which, which hard was product. the first character in the current product that you started. Tescrez Dummy. Tescrez Dummy. Dummy Dummy Robot. Yeah. Uh, I like that guy. Of, yeah. So yeah, he's one of, our, uh, one of our guys, Milutin uh, from Serbia, built that, and we tested him for the past three and a half years. So he's kind of like our flagship character. Um, yeah. You know, and then you know, obviously, uh, we worked with Aaron Sims uh, uh, and his studio. They build that. AC bot, we call it AC bot because Aaron's is creative, and and some of the aliens characters are going to come out soon. Uh, so you know we kind of went with two approaches. Like we have juniors that are internal, and seniors that are building it, and then we partner with some studios that are like, are like, would you like to you know build some characters for us? And obviously we we're not saying these are wonder characters. Where all of these characters, if you go on our website, you can see who built it, and it takes them to your to their website, right? So it's important for us to credit. Which is the most recent character of the current bunch? And I'm going to guess it's one that has facts built in, right? Yeah. So uh, Sandy, the the girl, she probably yeah. has the best performance, facial performance. And then the small alien, Sam. Sam, a lot of people don't realize that he's four feet. And so he scales up when you feel it because it's my skills. And he doesn't really perform and look that well. If you don't shoot a child and you know how to shoot, and if you don't shoot 4K, when you shoot 1080, the lighting doesn't texture. We didn't optimize him yet. We didn't have really time to optimize him. And then when we launched, everybody started using him on like an iPhone footage or the full shot in like a close-up that his head doesn't hit. And I was, I was like, oh no, that's Sam. Should we take him out? So. I think Sam is used a lot because it's got an, uh, a more articulated mouth. Um, though yeah. the rest of the face isn't quite uh, as articulated. Um, but it is interesting, the Sandy and the Professor, because of their sort of cartoon shadery uh, mm -hmm. kind of look. I think they're they're both really interesting. But I don't know what you guys were thinking with Toasterbot. That was just like. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody was out to lunch. <laughs> I love it. Guys, um, it's been great talking to you. Thank you so much. Uh, we've really uh, enjoyed the call, but also just been enjoying uh, playing with it. And uh, I, I do love it when you get some stuff that is so open to allow people to cross over and start experimenting, right? It's so encouraging to, to somebody that doesn't know stuff to then get that window and say, oh, my God, I can do this. Uh, now, of course, to be a professional, you need the 1,000 hours or 10,000 hours and you need all of the other things, right? But it's great right. that it's not a such a hurdle to just get something happening that looks really, really good. So uh, for that reason, and also just the quality of the actual ML and AI and, the, and you know, like where that's pointing to where the industry is going, it's uh, spectacular stuff. So thanks again. Well, thank you so much, Mike. And, you know, I, I, we have to say just shout out to our team. We've been very fortunate to have a really incredible, super smart, hardworking team. So, uh, you know, we, we obviously, even though we're, here talking to you, it really is a, a, a effort of the team and what they've done. And but the child in me is geeking out a little bit because you know you you were, as I say, indirectly one of my early professors in visual effects. So uh, we actually, when we started the company, we brought in a lot of people who don't know anything about VFX. We've made everybody uh, sign up for FX PhD 
you know, so they can get familiar with the industry and the tools. Uh, that's brilliant. I can't thank you enough for saying that. That's very kind of you. Uh, as I said, John Montgomery is, uh, I, I, yeah, is, uh, he'll be incredibly chuffed to hear that as well. John uh, heads that really. But brilliant, guys. Thanks so much. And uh, yeah, we'll post some examples uh, on our website, just uh, some of the tests that I've been describing so you can see what we're talking about, including me as the uh, test dummy, which I've got to say was the first one I did. <laughs> Awesome. Well, thanks guys for that. Really interesting to hear a bit more detail about this. Um, obviously it's really provides some good insights into how we can see AI tools uh, being used to really help make the process easier and better in visual effects. And so really appreciate you guys taking the time to chat with us. Well, that's it for this FX podcast. For my friend and co-founder of FX Guide, Mike Seymour, I'm John Montgomery. Thanks for listening. Please let us know if you have any suggestions for stories or future podcasts. You can reach us by clicking the Contact Us link at the top of the homepage. This podcast is copyright FX Guide, LLC. Broadcast or redistribution is prohibited without the expressed written consent of FX Guide.